just want to check Farrell. It's Farrell, isn't it? Yeah. It's not, you're not going to turn it. It's Farrell. <laughs> <laughs> Becky Farrell. It's definitely not. It's definitely not. Because I, I do get names where I'm like, I don't know. It's bouquet. It's bouquet, darling. <laughs> what do you say? But how are you feeling today? Are you angry? Mm. Shall we be angry together? Are you sad? Shall we cry together? Are you feeling quite optimistic? Shall we talk about the future a bit today? Don't assume. Hello friends and thank you for joining me for the Way Forward podcast brought to you by me, Fliss Goldsmith and Co-Design Coaching, where we create your optimal life together. This week, I am humbled to share the studio with a woman who has walked through the worst that life can offer and survived. Becky Farrell is here to talk to us today about grief and how she has found her way through the waves of pain, the chasms of loss, and the trenches of utter despair. Becky, welcome to The Way Forward, and thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you for having me. So I'm just going to start by filling in a little bit of Becky's story, and I want to just add a trigger warning that we are dealing with the subject of infant death today. Even saying the words infant death, the death of a baby, fills me with distress, Becky. So I cannot even imagine how hard it is for you to be here today and to help others by sharing your story. And I just want you to know that that in itself is nothing short of phenomenal. So in 2019... Becky birthed her first child, a boy. At just 26 weeks into her pregnancy, due to complications that had developed, she had just five days with her son, who died after a courageous fight to live. The grief that ensued is for Becky to describe, because I cannot begin to imagine the weight and the pain of this particular grief. A year after that, she and her husband were blessed by the birth of their second son, who was healthy and is now a robust three-year-old with the energy of a thousand sons, as described by his mum very proudly. (laughs) During this time, Becky has had extensive therapy for her and her family's grief. Drawing on a Herculean amount of strength, She's gone on to study midwifery in a bid to support other women and birthing people in their experiences. Now, that really is just a pencil sketch of your situation, Becky, but that's (laughs) that's because I want this to be your words. It's your story. So if you would, could you start by taking us back and describing what happened and the impact of the grief in those very, very early days? Sure, <laughs> I try. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Not it really is a privilege. It really, really is. I really think what you're doing is amazing with the podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I really that do. means the world. 
I think it's amazing, honestly. Oh, yeah. So, Rowan's pregnancy. So, he was... Rowan was my fourth pregnancy. Um, We'd been married for about two years, I think. No, longer than that. That's so bad. (laughs) So bad. Jake will forgive you, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it was about two years. Um, Yeah, the pregnancy was horrible. (laughs) But it was all the sort of usual stuff that... Sickness, tiredness... Mm. And it was the middle of summer. So, you know, going back to... There's nothing that midwives can go on. I know that now. Clinically, there was nothing wrong with me. Um, There was no blood pressure concerns, no clinical concerns or anything. I just felt rotten. But it's first pregnancy at that point. So that is normal. It's in the realms of clinical normalness. So I don't harbour any resentment there at all. Mm -hmm. Knowing what I know now, there's no resentment. There's no, you missed this and it was your fault. Which we'll talk about blame later. Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> I do think blame can be a big trap to fall into. Mm. But yeah, I'll get onto that. <laughs> so we got to about, tw- I think it was 24 weeks. And we had a trip booked. We were going to go off to Italy um, as our little last holiday together as a twosome. And then about two days into it, I just felt horrific, really, really poorly and in in a lot of pain. But it was stomach pain. Mm. So I was calling and texting the midwives at home, friends that I know that are midwives and trying to call assessment units and talking them through symptoms. And they all kind of agreed it sounded like food poisoning. And we'd had a bit of a dodgy dinner on the first night. So, yeah, I was happy with that. Mm -hmm. So just... Stayed in my hotel room for a couple of days and that was okay. And then it just kept getting worse and worse. And the pain was getting more intense and I couldn't keep down food or water. And then I got really concerned. So I was calling people back and saying, I don't I don't think this is food poisoning. I think there's something really wrong. Yeah. And because I couldn't be assessed, um, people were talking about gallstones and saying, it sounds like your gallbladder, can you get home? And we couldn't, we didn't have the money and none of our family had the money to sort of send us plane tickets to get back earlier. So we we were about an hour and a half on the train away from a city, from Naples. Yeah. So we tried to find an English-speaking hospital. So the receptionist, <laughs> we were great friends with by the end of it, <laughs> he got us a taxi to the local hospital and there was a massive language barrier. People didn't understand what I was trying to tell them. Um, that so, in itself must have been really terrifying. It was, it was so, there's so much of it I've blanked out because I think when when your baby dies, that overshadows everything. Mm. So you don't get to focus on well, you can, but the, the focus isn't on the trauma leading up to it. It's not on the illness. It's not what happened to you because your baby died, and that's just kind of full stop. Yeah, and that's the lid on everything. So all of this stuff, it's like. I'm recalling it, but it feels like remembering it for the first time again. It was really Mm. strange. But we managed to get in the hospital. Um, So we got my wristband and we're on Google Translate trying to tell them what the problem was. And I kept telling them how far gone I was. I said, I'm 26 weeks. And they scanned me and they were saying, you're not 26 weeks. You've got your dates wrong. And I was like, okay. And then they checked checked my um my fluid levels my liqua amniotic fluid and said that they were a bit low and I should see a doctor when I got home but 
my problem wasn't pregnancy related and sent me off to the pharmacy to get paracetamol and charcoal tablets. Okay. Which now I found that the magnesium and the charcoal, they give you magnesium sulfate when you get poorly. So maybe that had something to do with holding us out, but we just rode it out for days. Mm. And clinically, help syndrome is life-threatening. So I'm pretty, I feel pretty lucky. And I don't remember the last couple of days of being in that hotel room, apart from just being in agony all the time. So was that the name of the condition that you had then, help syndrome? Help syndrome. Yeah, it's not something that I know a great deal about or had heard about before, you know, I knew yeah. what had happened it's to really you. Um, but it's it's life-threatening to the mother as well as the child. I think it depends on what gestation you develop it at and the severity of it and how soon you get to it. And it's supposed to be a, like a development of preeclampsia. Mm. But before I flew, we did the blood pressure text. There was no hypertension, no preeclampsia signs. So, And when I was diagnosed in the hospital... Again, no blood pressure problems. So I don't know. There's no direct, clear yes that it is a form of preeclampsia. Yeah. But that's what it's grouped as. That's I sort see. of the umbrella thing yeah. to it. So I don't really remember getting home. I knew they wouldn't let us fly if, if they knew how poorly we were. Mm. But, yeah, I just remember passing out on the plane and then waking up. And then we were in Manchester Airport. And Jake's mum had ordered us, ordered us a taxi from Manchester because she couldn't get there herself. But we were kind of ready and waiting. Pregnancy assessment unit at Derby were expecting us. They knew we were coming. Um, and she, Carol just said, you know, if you're too poorly, go straight to Manchester Hospital. But mm. if you can, get in the taxi, come back to Derby. So we did. Don't remember the taxi ride. Just drifting off and on and watching my phone and watching the minutes countdown. And then when we finally got there, I seemed okay. <laughs> I was up and chatting to people. and Maybe that relief that you were somewhere you felt safer. Back in the NHS. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I remember thinking, no, <laughs> I'm not going to be well as soon as I get here. I know there's yeah. something wrong. So I thought I was quite sneaky. I was like, well, I know eating aggravates it, so I'm going to eat something. Mm. And then I did, and it the pain came back and things started going wrong again so we did all the usual checks that you get done a pregnancy assessment so you take a urine sample you do a blood pressure sample um take bloods if you need to but just do a general clinical check and they didn't seem too bad and again no blood pressure issues which is a preeclampsia symptom and then they admitted me for the pain i got onto labor ward and they took blood tests and as soon as the first lot of blood results came back that's when the doctors came um, so HELP syndrome stands for hemolysis, where the blood starts breaking down and stops producing red blood cells, so it stops producing oxygen. Mm. Um, elevated liver enzymes, so the liver starts to break down. Um, and a low platelet count, so low white blood cells, your immune system tails off. And it can affect your kidney function as well. So by the time... We'd started taking the bloods. My liver was shutting down. My kidneys weren't working properly. My blood wasn't clotting. And I was just getting more and more unwell. And then they took me down into the high dependency unit. And I remember them needing so much blood. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had a central line put in. I actually have, yeah. And it's, (gasps) oh, yeah, it's (laughs) horrible. Did you get yours stitched in? 
No. Yeah, I got one stitched. So they they went for a a central line in my wrist and then surgically attached it. Yeah. And it was just there all the time. It was, you know how horrible they are. Oh, they're vile. Yeah, stomach turningly horrible having that in your, yeah. You can feel it going against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like you don't move your arm. Yeah, You're just you like just if I don't move, it doesn't hurt. Oh yes, it does. Yes, yes it, it, does. it does. It still does. It really yeah. does. So it it was so strange because I I just remember all the doctors coming in and saying the same thing like your blood work is atrocious, but you look fine because mm. I was still sat up and chatting to people, and just to look at looked normal, just a bit pale, but I'm ginger, so. <laughs> Goes through the territory. Exactly. And then we did a scan of Rowan and they gave us, and I distinctly remember it, they gave us a one naught to three percent chance of him surviving and said that he'd stopped growing around 21 weeks. My placenta was just done. There was barely any oxygen flow and there was barely any fluid left. And even before my training, I knew that that was bad. Yeah. So they basically told us to prepare prepare ourselves to lose him. But they were gonna give it give him his best shot anyway. So they started calling for high level NICU units to find a space that could take us. Um my doctor was adamant that we could have been fine at Derby and I'm sure we would have been. Mm. But they were just calling all the NICU units. We had the helipad ready to go to Edinburgh. <laughs> Jake was angry that we were fuming that we didn't get to go in the helicopter. <laughs> but luckily, they found us one at Nottingham and a level three Nikki that could take us. So we blue lighted over to there. And it was just this. I don't even know how long we were in there for, but every day started off the same. And they said, to give him the best chance of survival. They'd keep him in as long as they could without it making it too bad for me. Mm. And that they'd have to really pick a moment and balance it out because the only treatment for help is deliver the baby because your organs are shutting down and things are getting dangerous. So I said, that's fine. Just leave it until the longest you possibly can. Give him his best chance. So every day started off the same. I remember Jake being so angry and frustrated. And we'd start the day with good blood levels, platelets would come up. You need a plate you need a platelet count of about a hundred to operate mm. to make sure you don't bleed out. And mine were hovering at sort of 30, 40. And every day they'd shoot up to sort of 70, 80. So they'd go, right, today's the day, we're gonna do it. And then they'd come down again and it'd oh. be too dangerous. And then they'd go up again in the afternoon and then they'd come down again. And it was just this constant up and down. That emotional roller coaster yeah. must have been agony. We were exhausted. And it was just like that every day. Of, yeah, this is going to happen. No, it's too dangerous. Yes, we're going to do it. No, we have to do it now. Mm. And okay, you, your bloods are fine again. We're going to leave you for a little bit. And then I started having seizures, which is another preeclamptic seizures which puts you at massive risk of a stroke. So I think that's what made them make the call. I've asked for my notes back, so I'm going to sit and read through them. But I think that was the thing that pushed for the call. Mm. Um, So off we went. And I think my platelets had come back up to 70 again. So it was a category one, which is you've got 
categories for sections. Category one is you have to operate in 30 minutes. You've got a 30 minute window to get baby out. Your category two is 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. And then your category three is it's got to happen today. So we went in and they had, they put them in sandwich bags, micro primas. Wow. Literal sandwich bags just to <sighs> give them sort of humidity and warmth and help them regulate their body temperature. So we had the team ready. So many people in the room. So many people. And the peds team were all ready. They had the bags. They had intubation. They had everything. And he came out crying and screaming. So he didn't need it. <sighs> and I just remember thinking, oh, my God. And I didn't see him, but Jake did. Because I was I was very out of it. I needed a lot of pethidin to calm me down. Because okay. I was a bit hysterical. Mm. And so Jake saw him, took a load of pictures, and then they sent him off to NICU, and I went into recovery. And I didn't see him for the first day. And the, again, this is all the blurry bit as well. Because I, they put, took me down to the postnatal ward, and then I started having seizures again. So I had more of the, the drip, the magnesium sulfate drip. Mm. And then we went back upstairs to labour ward where it was one-on-one -on -one care. And then we just sort of bounced around for a bit. But I had a really bad time in Nottingham. They put me in a room with a mum and her baby twice <laughs> in a little side room with another mum and baby. And I mean, that's just an unforgivable <sighs> thought, let alone an actual process to happen, I just... to put you in that situation. Again, from working in the job, I know it's only been a year and a half, but you hand over patients, you give them the background of their situation. Mm -hmm. So to know that you've got a mum whose baby is on intensive level three care and who doesn't have a good prognosis, I wouldn't put them in a room with a healthy baby crying away. I just wouldn't do that. No. So we had to, the first time they did it, was before I started having seizures again. So they had to move me back up. And then it happened again. But I was with my friend who's a, a very fiery solicitor. <laughs> she she rip-roared. Yes. She absolutely let loose and demanded to speak to a manager in an office. Which is exactly what you need at that point. Someone who can advocate for you she, in that did. situation. Because Jake was exhausted. He never left. He, was. he never got a chair to sleep on. My sister had to bring an inflatable airbed in for him to sleep on. He just slept on a pile of blankets in the corner at one point. He must have been absolutely drained. He was exhausted and he was the one sort of going back and forth from NICU to the ward. And the first time I went to go see Ro, I just collapsed because I was too hot. I was in a wheelchair and I just passed out because I, I was so determined to go and see him, but I was too ill. Yeah. So we'd, I spent as much time with him as I could, but it just made me ill. And that's a guilt thing that I live with as well. In what way? To not, not being able to spend as much time with him, even though I know that it wasn't entirely a choice. You can't fit a bed in, in the unit, so there was... I'd just sort of prop myself up on pillows and say, yeah, I'm fine. Mm. <laughs> I can hold myself up just to spend time with him. So Jake spent most of his time in NICU and I'd get visitors to come in and see me. So both of us were being looked after. 
And we were just on the phone all the time. The NICU staff were incredible. They called us with every single update. Yeah. We were never sort of out of the loop. And then it was day five. We were trying to get his kidneys to work. So we were just... It was like two days of waiting for him to go for a wee. Yeah, come on. <laughs> and he did. And it was great. And then we got the call about five o'clock in the morning for us to come downstairs. And I think we knew. We knew what the call was. And the doctor that had been with us had been so lovely. And they just said, you know, pulled us into the room and said that, you know, his oxygen had gone down. They needed to intubate him. He wasn't breathing on his own. All of his organ systems were just really mature and str immature and struggling. And the only thing that there was really left to do was just be with him and give him a cuddle. So that was the choice we made. And we pulled him off the machines and just had a cuddle with him. And that was it. It's the one. It's the only time I got to hold him. Yeah. And I, you know, I just want to let people who are listening know that the pain and the strain and the grief is etched all over Becky's face because I can't even take my brain to a place where it could begin to imagine how you get through a situation like that. And yet, here she is, not only having got through that moment where she was told that her baby was going to die and holding him as he left this world, but now sitting here talking to us so that other people do not have to face that same situation as unequipped and unsupported and untalked about and unseen as she had to. And I think that that is the thing that stands out so much, Becky, that you've chosen this career in midwifery, which some would say is incredibly brave, and I would agree, and some might even say it's a really strange choice because why would you put yourself back in that place? But I'd love for you to tell us why midwifery had to be where you went next. Yeah, definitely. So I think for me, I'd always wanted to be a nurse. <laughs> yeah. Because I was really poorly when I was a kid as well. I had cancer when I was about three and I spent a lot of time in hospitals and was just always poorly with something. And I thought, I'd love to do this. I'd love to be there. But there was never a, a sort of discipline of nursing that pulled me in. Mm. You know, anything that I'd had experience with, oncology or asthma or anything, but nothing felt right. So it just kind of went on the back burner. And then I think I, it was a week after I'd come out of hospital with Rowan and I sat there and I just went, I'm going to be a midwife. <laughs> <laughs> and I started getting all these books from charity shops about anatomy and physiology. And because we went away to live in the caravan mm -hmm. for a couple of months, which 
I think saved our sanity, 100%. I don't know, so I don't want to do it. And midwifery is all about empowerment and it's empowering people to give birth and have faith in their bodies. And I thought, you know, that's that's amazing, that's incredible. But we need to be empowering women whose bodies didn't... <laughs> I don't want to say failed them because that's just how I feel and I'd never put that onto anybody else. No. But who feels like their body failed them and empower them to know that that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> and I think it's just that, what you've said. I want to help women and families and partners and birthing people know what's coming. And I don't think that I can have any impact on anybody's grief journey or anybody's experience but I still feel useful in a way. And I think even feeling a fraction useful in that kind of situation, I just feel like I have to do it. If I've got something to offer a family in that situation, I have to give it. It's not, it doesn't feel like a choice. I don't see the point of going through something like that and not using it for anything externally. I don't see the point of just sort of carrying it <clears throat> and keeping it to myself if it can be useful for somebody else. And I think it will be massively useful. I mean, we were saying before we started recording that there's this big misconception that grief is linear. And, you know, I'm not a fan of the stages of grief because... No, I've it, never it, been through the stages it, and counted it, them. It, 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 grief bounces around yeah. I mean we've talked before about it's like you have to stay afloat in the waves and yeah. in those early days the waves are <coughs> faster Constant. and bigger than you can ever imagine oh yeah um, but they never stop coming no they don't it never stops they just take bigger breaks yeah and they can come at totally inconceivable moments where you're just sort of you know having a coffee with your friend and then suddenly you feel like you've been engulfed by this yeah. grief and you're like, what i was i was doing all right what where did that come yeah, from we were having a good day yeah today was a good day <laughs> today and this, was a good this, day this, this came um so every and everybody's grief is unique yeah but i think what you're doing as you said is to give them the knowledge that they have not failed that their bodies did not fail. There's nothing you can do so many times. But that their... I think what you're giving them is hope that you can survive yeah. the unsurvivable. Yeah, you can. You absolutely can. And I think one of the things I've learned about grief is it's not necessarily the death that traumatises you. It's the, like, the micro-events around it mm -hmm. and the circumstances around it that traumatise you. And I think maybe that is what I've got to offer is I can sort of prevent or foresee those tiny moments. Yeah. Like they were, because they're so intrusive. You can just be sat having a coffee and you'll get a, this flash image of their body. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I didn't want to see that. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. And there was, there's, a, there's an image that I've got of him. And because he, he was 490 grams when he was born, he was tiny. That's like a jar of jam yeah absolutely tiny a literal jar of jam and i've got this intrusive picture in my head that keeps coming back of when they took the tubes out of him and his little body was flapping like a balloon on the bed because somebody hadn't thought to pull the screen round 
And it's little moments like that. You can't unsee that. You can't unsee it. And I think if I can prevent a few moments like that from happening, I've done my job. If I can think, hold on, the parents don't want to see this. And it's... It's little things like I'd looked after a gorgeous family whose baby had passed at 16 weeks and we were doing the photos and the memory making. And, you know, you think, oh, no, we don't want those photos. They've got bloodstains on or this. And I'm like, they're the only photos this family has. Give them the choice. Yeah. And just say to them, you know, we've got these photographs. They might not be ideal. They're not perfect, but they're yours if you want them. Mm. And the hospital that I work at I love the way they handle it because they just put them all on a memory card and say, go through them when you want. Yeah. Print off what you want, what you don't want. And it's giving them that choice and that empowerment so that they feel they have some control back in the uncontrollable situation. Because in that situation, you must have, I imagine, felt like you had zero control. Absolutely floundering. And just to have a little bit of autonomy yeah. over a photo yeah. or over a situation yeah. could be massive. absolutely huge. Massive. And we will say to them, you know, some of the pictures might upset you because they're in certain positions, or but we can go through those and delete them mm-hmm. if you'd like. You, you just give people options. And yeah. it's the little details that I think, you know, I'm not saying that you have to go through baby loss to be aware of them, but sometimes you're just a little bit more in tune with them mm-hmm. if you have. Of course. If it's a shared experience. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I think there's a lot to be said for the shared experience because yeah. it's the it's the club nobody wants to be in. Ugh, it's yeah. the you know, it's the worst club going. But when you when you've been admitted as a member, as you sadly have, like you say, you know, you can share that common ground of, I don't know your exact feelings, but I've got an idea of where you are. Yeah, we're Um, not in the same boats, but we're in the same ocean. Yeah, 100%. That kind of thing. And I know this now might seem a strange sort of thing to bring up, but I really, if it's all right with you, would just love to celebrate all Mm. of your boys because... You know, I know that the boys in your life are your life. And (laughs) there's there's three of them. Um, And I know that um, your second son has um, so much energy. So much energy. So tell us about him. He's so wild. He's so wild. And I think this is is an aspect of parenthood that I'm only just kind of working through in therapy. And it's... (laughs) It's really sad to me. I feel really sad for myself, which which feels really strange. But Jake and Jacob are the same person at different times of their lives. Wow. They are so similar. They've got fantastic energy. And, <clears throat> and I just, I tell Jake all the time, I love the bond he's got with him. I love it so much. Um... And he's just eased into it like that. It looked like the most natural thing in the world with him. Yeah. But I don't include myself in that family. And that's the bit that I'm trying to work through because I don't... I see Jacob as this sort of gift or... Yeah, almost like a gift to Jake to make up for what happened. And I don't include myself in that I see my family as 
there's the Jakes and then there's me. I really struggled to see us as a whole family and to connect with that. And that's something that I struggle with. Parenting after loss is really tricky. And do you think that's powered and underlaid by the grief of yeah, Rowan's so. loss? I can't forgive myself for Rowan dying. So I have gifted this healthy child to Jake. And I can't... I can't bring myself to get invested or bond because I'm so terrified that something could happen and I feel like if I let myself, I'm going to jinx it. And I mean, he's three now and I didn't... I didn't think they would be here. And I'm just starting now to sort of bond with him properly and, and trust it. But I'm still so cautious and so worried about it all the time and you know I'm, I'm out the house a lot Jake's a stay-at-home dad and I think a part of me finds that really convenient because I don't have to confront that and I don't I can count on one hand the amount of times that I've independently taken Jacob out and been with him and been in because I don't trust myself I don't trust myself to keep him safe and I don't know if that's because we had him so quickly after everything. I don't know if it would have made a difference. No. But, you know, I don't... <clears throat> I had a chat with Jake about this not long ago and said, you know, I don't regret having him so soon and getting pregnant so soon. I don't regret it at all because it's worked out perfectly for our family as a unit. It just feels like it's worked out for everyone but me. And I feel like it was the right time for them to be father and son and for the Farrell family as a whole. But it's not. But it's been hard on me because I wasn't ready. But I knew that if I stepped out of that sort of bubble of having kids, I wouldn't step back in again. Because I'd, of that fear. I'd be too scared. So I had to do it before I really started thinking about it because it was against medical advice. Because <laughs> for <laughs> loads of reasons. Clinically, it was against advice because I'd had a classical section where it's the big vertical incision because mm. he was so tiny, it was the safest option. So, you know, the wait time between cesareans, you recommend six months to a year anyway, but with a classical, it's longer. Um, I think, please don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, I don't think anyone's going to be looking that up for the technical. <laughs> on the RCM says. It says, <laughs> yes. This should be actually 302 days. So it was against a lot of advice. Um, there was no, there was no way to work out the recurrence risk. It's a very big number. Mm. It's between sort of eighteen and sixty percent, something like that. Which is massive. Huge. Massive. You wouldn't, you know, sort of look at odds like that on, you know, taking a bet on something and yeah. do it, would you? You'd no. go, no, it's a bit risky. That it was very risky. Um, but we had nothing to lose at that point. We had nothing to lose, so we just went for it and didn't think about it which I would not recommend, it's very dangerous, <laughs> but I had to. There was no way that I was going to mull on it and think about it for a year because we just wouldn't have. Just, and I, I think your have. honesty, you know, there has... It's really flawed me because I sort of pride myself on being able to talk very openly about things, 
but to access that level of honesty, you probably don't see it, but you are superhuman. <laughs> and, and you will laugh it off, but you are. Because to sit here and explain that with the amount of love you have for your whole family, that is nothing short of phenomenal. And there will be people listening who up until this point have heard all the platitudes, have heard all the things that people say in grief, who have maybe even heard things around baby loss, and it will have just washed off them because it doesn't have that visceral connection, that honesty that you are sitting here and giving. And grief can come from so many things. It can come from, you know, the loss of a baby. It can come from the death of a parent. It can come from the loss of relationships, the loss of your health. There are so many griefs. And we were saying again before this started that it's the one thing that is certain that you will experience mm -hmm. that emotion of grief. Yeah. At some point in your life, you cannot live without experiencing a grief because you will lose somebody yeah. or something at some time. Um, and, you know, just before we sort of wrap up this discussion for today, and I mean, I don't think we're finished. I think if you'd come back another time, I'd love to talk about other aspects more specifically. Yeah. Um, but I would just, for anybody who is grieving in any, in any grief situation, to give them that empowerment, what would you say to somebody today if they are sat here with their cup of coffee, with that pit of their stomach, grief feeling? I don't know that I could find the words. I just hug them. Yeah. Sit with them. Yeah. I think people wildly underestimate the power of just giving, of holding space for people. Mm. Because we know there's no, there's no magic phrase. It's not open sesame yeah <laughs> and everything's fine it's not open sesame it's it's just not that and there is no magic formulation of words or or anything that can have any real impact on it but holding space and just letting people work through what they need to work through without judgment and without pressure to work through it quickly because life's moving on and you're going to get left behind I think that's really powerful, just letting people be honest with themselves and letting them explore bits of their grief and their mental health journey that other people might indirectly make them feel ashamed of or embarrassed mm. about. You shouldn't feel like that. That's awful. I know it's awful. Yeah. But here I am feeling yes. it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's not really a choice thing. It's not a choice. And I think that's a really dangerous mindset to have is that you've got choices. Mm. It's not... You don't pick your path. It's not. A, it's not like an emotional sat nav. You can just add spots onto. Well, no. Otherwise, we'd all go in the direction we wanted, and nothing else. We'd go through the stages of grief as it's yeah. supposed to, and we'd work. It doesn't work like that because everybody's lives are so different. And I think just ask people what they need to hear, mm -hmm. because you know, especially with loss. Sometimes you need to hear that it's going to get better. And, you know, well, I know this person and this happened to them. And look at all the great things they're doing. Sometimes you need to hear that. And then sometimes that's the opposite of what you need yes. to hear. You just, yes. you need to be told this is horrible. 
I think people are afraid to say that. Yeah. Because they want to fix it. Yeah, you can't. It's can't. not for you to fix. No. And I think, ask people what they need to hear. But how are you feeling today? Are you angry? Mm. Shall we be angry together? Are you sad? Shall we cry together? Are you feeling quite optimistic? Shall we talk about the future a bit today? Yeah. Don't assume. Yeah, get, I think, get curious and get yeah. comfortable with the uncomfortable because it it's really uncomfortable. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> but, but you need <laughs> people around you yeah. that can be okay with horrible. Yeah. And you, they're not always the people you think they're going to be. No. It's very surprising, isn't it? Yeah. It's very it surprising. Really so... I think if you will come back, we yeah, can, absolutely. you know, continue this conversation because there's so much that I would like to explore mm. on a much deeper level. But I just want to thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me. And giving me the privilege to create the space for your story. Oh, thank you. Your motherhood, your grief and the empowerment you're giving to so many people and the celebration of your beautiful family. Thank you. Your beautiful family. Um, and if you want to follow Becky's incredible mettlesome work in midwifery and her tireless endeavours around making grief something that we're not afraid to explore anymore, you can follow her on Instagram and I will put her um, handle into the show notes. It's at midwife underscore Farrell underscore in underscore progress slash Becky underscore Farrell. And of course, if you want to work in a fully supported way on your emotional well-being, then please do head to codesignwithfliss.com and we can talk more about the empowerment that you deserve. And I have asked Becky's permission for this, but I would really like to dedicate this episode of The Way Forward to Rowan Farrell, who was also known as Tiny Mighty. Thank you.